All right, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you again for the privilege and the honor of gathering together as family. Thank you for the unity of the faith. Thank you for revealing to us how you save and sanctify us daily. Thank you for Scripture, the completed canon. Thank you also for revealing to us the strategies and the tactics of our enemies, regardless of who they might be. We are most grateful and thankful, of course, for your son's work on the cross to our benefit. We do just ask for your blessings on this evening's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Again, uh, the Gospel, Salvation, and Sanctification, Part 73. Uh, before we go any further in our studies, I want to remind you of the big picture again. It's really important, folks, that you don't lose track of where we're coming from, where we're going. We've already looked at and surveyed in Scripture the salvation perspectives, both God and man's, uh, be it the three tenses or what have you. Uh, but the idea, again, is that our viewpoint is learned. Even though our viewpoint is learned in pieces, we realize once we see the big picture that our perspective, as we're sanctified progressively, experientially, however you'd like to look at it, our perspective becomes more God-like, which means, our, as Colossians 3 would say, our mind is are set on things above. Um, and so that's part of the reason why he's doing what he's doing with this congregation. He's sort of uplifting our perspective. And he's saying, I need you to have more of my perspective. It's important because I built you to learn bitwise, whether you think of it in tenses or what have you, but I need you to share in my perspective at some juncture in your spiritual career. So we looked at salvation perspectives. We've also now moved towards sanctification perspectives. Uh, and likewise, there was God's, which really is just, he's got a plan that's meant to set us apart, to make us holy, to sanctify us. And then we also, because of the way uh, we are built, the way that we learn as finite minded creatures, the way that the Bible itself is structured, we can learn uh, about sanctification in three phases, positional, experiential, and ultimate. And for obvious reasons, the one that's of most interest to us on a day like today is experiential, because that's our life. Um, for most of you, I'm assuming the positional aspect of sanctification is behind you. It's from faith to faith, so we don't forget where we're coming from. But again, all of this is to lend uh, ourselves to understanding God's perspective, which is a much bigger perspective. So as He sanctifies us, uh, we have more and more of a godly viewpoint. Okay, so that with that out of the way, that big picture in full view again, let's review some material. And this was uh, something that was asked of you on Tuesday evening. And it's a good place for us to start. Do you ever wonder at someone else's faith? Do you ever come across somebody and you say, wow, that person has tremendous faith? Or maybe even in the opposite. I wonder why they don't have any faith, given all that they know. Uh, so do you ever wonder, though, let's take it in the affirmative do you ever wonder at someone else's faith? 
And I was thinking about it because um, that's what the Spirit wanted me to do as I was learning from Tuesday as well. If you're arrogant and you say, never, never do I wonder at someone else's faith, then may I submit Jesus to you. And if you still say never, then frankly I give up. I also submit that wonderment isn't always a bad thing. It may just be that God has given someone else a different measure of faith in some area of life. Let me give you an analogy and pretend that this is happening, and most of you have been through this at some point in your life. Shh! You hear that? Shh! Do you hear that? Um, no. Just listen. You can't hear that? Are you deaf? And you say something like, hey, give me some of whatever you're smoking. I don't hear a thing. So the next day the tables are turned and you say to your friend, wow, will you just look at that? Um, huh? Look at that cloud in the sky. Isn't it beautiful? It's shaped just like a cross. Um, Maybe you ought to be giving me some of that stuff that you're smoking, my friend. I don't see anything. It's funny how sometimes we hear things that others can't hear and see things that others can't see, or vice versa, or feel, or smell, or whatever sense is in view. So goes the analogy in 1 Corinthians 12 to the body of Christ. Go to 1 Corinthians 12, 17. 1 Corinthians 12, 17. And again, the question on the board that's instigating this little beginner thought for this evening, do you ever wonder at someone else's faith? 1 Corinthians 12, 17. If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? But now God has placed the members, each one of them, in the body just as He desired. If they were all one member, where would the body be? It would be a big old eyeball. You could see everything, but you couldn't hear anything. Or you could hear everything, you couldn't smell a thing. So if they were all one member, where would the body be? But now there are many members, but one body. And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Or again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you, etc., etc. You get the point. It's good to wonder, as per the point On the board, do you ever wonder at someone else's faith? You know, I'd argue that it's a good thing to wonder at someone else's faith. Maybe even be encouraged by it. The analogy to the body of Christ is that some have ears to hear, some have eyes to see. So, what the Bible teaches us dogmatically is what came up on Tuesday, towards the end of class, I believe, 
We need each other. Yeah. We need each other. 1 Corinthians 12, 11. Just so happens, this is a, a weird thing to happen, but I go to Sean's track meet before class to go see him tear up the rubber. Huh? And John Gardner's there. So anytime I go out in public like that, it's always, a, it could be an ordeal, you know, because people irritate me. And because they're so worldly. And so it was nice to see a member of the congregation at, out there. Just like it's nice to, to know, to almost be guaranteed, that you're all going to be here. It's a nice thing to know driving to church, isn't it? To get out of that and come to this. Why? Because we need each other. It's that simple. Whether we like to admit it or not is not the issue. We need each other. 1 Corinthians 12, 11, but one in the same spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually just as he wills. As Scott stated on Tuesday, even your attendance at church is a gift. It is. The fact that you woke up this morning and made it here is a gift to the rest of us. And you need to think about that. That's how valuable you are to us, to the rest of us. Everybody here is valuable to the rest of us. And you should think that way. Because God designed it so. Because you're an ear and you're an eye and you're a... Scott, I don't know what you are. You're this and you're that, right? <laughs> hey, it says esteem those of less esteem more highly, right? So maybe you're... I can't say it. <laughs> right? But you're a gift. Everybody here is a gift given by God for the sake of everyone else. So faith may be different, but we all have some God-given measure of it. Faith may be different, but we all have some God-given measure of it. Again, the simple question that spawned this was, do you ever wonder at someone else's faith? For example, how is it that some are able to flawlessly avoid sin under, given, under a given temptation while others fail almost every time? In other words, why is it one person can be like, eh, it's not even really a temptation for me, and the next person is just like, patum, 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 every time? The answer is faith. And that's it. On Sunday, I gave you a little Latin namely posse non peccari, able not to sin was our focal point, able not to sin. Not, not able to sin like God, but able not to sin like Jesus and his humanity. And that was to get you thinking about the spiritual life. As a foundation, we noted that Jesus perfected the spiritual life, even in his humanity. Remember, God, deity can't be tempted, so we're not talking about his deity. We went over that. Jesus, in his humanity, perfected the spiritual life. That's what Hebrews 12.2 says, the author and perfecter of our faith. It can be done. A person was able not to sin perfectly under the, with the same provisions that you have. Grace, humility. 
He's the only person to have or ever have been tempted in all things, but never sinned. We saw that in Hebrews 4.15. That's why we have a high priest that can sympathize. He says, I've been tempted. I mean, have you been brought out and tempted by Satan himself? Most people are like, I'll take it. <laughs> Bow down to me, I'll give you all of this. I'll take it. <laughs> right? We wouldn't have lasted two seconds. But Jesus did. So what about Jesus' faith? As a human, Jesus' faith never failed him. Why? Because he was perfectly humble. Therefore, God gave him perfect faith. Faith never fails. It can only abide in God's will. And that's an interesting thread that the Spirit has been ever so gently weaving between our messages. If you have true faith, all you're really going to want to do is His will. That faith will attach itself to something or some portion or some aspect of your life, and you will bear fruit. So as a human, Jesus' faith never failed Him. Why? Because He was perfectly humble. Therefore, God gave Him perfect faith. Faith never fails. It can only abide in God's will. This was why I asked you to think about that probing question. If you have faith, will you do anything other than walk by it? The perfect example being Jesus Christ, who had perfect faith, and he didn't do anything but walk by it, ever. So there's gradation there, but you get the point. If you have faith, will you do anything other than walk by it? In other words, that's all faith can do, if it's pure. You might say, but I believe I have a certain faith, but somehow I get stuck. And I find myself wrestling with my flesh most days, and it's just awful. Well, first, know that you're not alone. That helps. Remember the gifts. You're not alone. If you're struggling with faith, I mean, you're not alone. Just read Romans 7 and look at Paul, how he struggled in his life. It's normal to struggle with the flesh. But here's the subtlety that the Spirit's been adding to our arsenal, if you want to call it that. Concentrate. Overcoming darkness. Now, we're going to look at Jesus because he's the perfect one, the author and perfecter of faith. Faith that delivers us from darkness to light. Jesus overcame darkness by abiding in the light exclusively. So he's our perfect example. He sort of establishes the relationship between faith and abiding in light. That's different than the person who splits their time, energy, and attention between wrestling with darkness and abiding in the light. Faith implies letting go. In other words, what? where is your focus? Do you focus the way religious people do on darkness and try to wrestle it to the ground? Or do you simply turn and face the light in faith and let it go? And let go of the old self. For many of you, the past few years have been 
about letting go. And the idea of children comes up a lot in our studies for a reason. It's because they're actually more like Jesus than we are in many ways. They have less to let go of. They've spent less time in darkness. They've developed fewer bad habits to deal with darkness. I mean, you ever hear the term, oh, that person's just dealing with their demons right now? Well, that's not even the right approach. That's not even the right approach. It doesn't say deal with your demons. It doesn't say fight darkness. It says resist the devil and he will flee from you. How do you do that? You turn away from him. Resist him. He's, he says, look at me. Look at me. You ever know? A good manipulator will always get your attention first. That's how they manipulate you. So if you never give them your attention in the first place, they have no power over you. That's why people love to use emotionalism to manipulate other people, because people are disgusting, right? Let me get you emotionally spun up, and then I've got you. Satan's no different. He uses the flesh. He uses things like emotionalism in the flesh to drag you back to fight a war that you cannot win. So for many of you, the past few years has been really about letting go of those things. Letting go of the things the flesh doesn't want to. So here's a short list of the things that faith can do in your life. And these are just things that I was thinking about. You know, as I was listening to the lesson, by faith we're able to what? Avoid temptation, focus on the light, avoid the darkness, live a life of peace, a supernatural life, overcome illness even, find true victory, etc., etc., etc. These things don't happen while you're wrestling with darkness. These things happen when you're focused on the light. That's an issue of faith. So we ought all remember that every time we overcome the darkness, being inundated and even wrapped in it, Think of this body of death. This body of death literally abides in darkness. We're wrapped in it. (laughs) It wants to do all kinds of crazy things, doesn't it? It has all kinds of crazy impulses, doesn't it? It does. So we ought to all remember, though, that every time we overcome the darkness, we bring glory to God. So it's interesting to ponder how God goes about doing this in terms of scale and magnitude even. In other words, how does he bring glory to himself and to what degree brings him more glory than the next? What, what's the mechanism here? The following question rose in our study on Tuesday evening up here on the board relative to overcoming darkness. Ask yourself, Paul's a perfect example. Why did God choose Paul an admitted poor speaker as the quote-unquote big evangelist in the early church to the Gentiles, many of who were intellectuals, like Gnostics. Why would he choose the little guy with the stutter? Why would he choose that person to evangelize the Gentiles of all people, who many of were Gnostic, etc.? 
The answer is to prove his point. To prove his point. Not unlike he did with Gideon in the 300 soldiers in Judges 7. We'll see that in a moment. Darkness seeks creature credit. The light abolishes that. Darkness seeks creature credit. The light abolishes that. The Lord, in other words, makes it a habit of assisting us, quote-unquote, in not taking the credit for His grace. And many times He'll say, I'm going to do it despite you. I'm going to take the worst persecutor, Saul, and I'm going to make him the great evangelist in the early church. And you know what? He's not going to be smooth in speech. He's not going to be like uh, King Saul. He's not going to be head and shoulders and handsome and all these other things. He's going to be this guy that you're probably not even going to like his personality because he's probably abrasive and aggressive. All I want to know is Christ and Christ crucified. Right? Okay, Paul, we get it. Move along. Right? That probably was Paul. But here's the beauty, and this is what I wrote about in my most recent blog about questioning faith, etc. God's going to use... God doesn't care about how beautiful the gospel is to this world. You know why? Because the gospel is... Think of the ugliest thing you could think of right now. That's the gospel, the real gospel, not the little ones, the little... The real one is that ugly to the world. It's literally offensive. But God doesn't care. He says, good. Let it be offensive. Because I'm seeking humble souls. Ones that don't care about such things. About how the, the deliverer looks or the fact that he can't speak all that well. Big deal. Big deal. Darkness seeks creature credit, the light abolishes that. Go to Judges 7-2, where we'll see the familiar story of Gideon. And this is a wonderful statement in verse 2, Judges 7-2. And it really sets up the rest of the passage. Judges 7, verse 2. It really sets up the rest of the passage, and it's right there at the outset of the passage. Judges 7, 2, The Lord said to Gideon, The people who are with you are too many for me to give Midian into their hands. For Israel would become boastful, saying, My own power has delivered me. Hmm. Now therefore come proclaim in the hearing of the people, saying, Whoever is afraid and trembling... Let him return and depart from Mount Gilead. So 22,000 people, 22,000 people returned, but 10,000 remained. Then the Lord said to Gideon, the people are still too many. Bring them down to the water and I will test them for you there. Therefore it shall be that he of whom I say to you, this one shall go with you, he shall go with you. But everyone of whom I say to you, this one shall not go with you, he shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water, and the Lord said to Gideon, You shall separate everyone who laps the water with his tongue as a dog laps, as well as everyone who kneels to drink. 
Now the number of those who lapped, putting their hand to their mouth, was three hundred men. But all the rest of the people kneeled to drink water. The Lord said to Gideon, I will deliver you with the three hundred men who lapped and will give the Midianites into your hand. So let all the other people go, each man to his home. What do you think he was saying? The account of Gideon and the Midianites is a wonderful example of the point on the board. This goes with Paul as well. Why did God choose the lesser to prove a point? To prove a point. He doesn't need um, the things that are esteemed by the world. Matter of fact, those things tend to get in the way. I call it the last frontier. We all cling to it with our own flesh. But that thing, you know, I'm strong or I'm intelligent or I'm witty or I'm this or I'm that. These things are all esteemed in the world. Yeah, that's Satan going, look at me. I think you're wonderful. Let's hold on to this darkness for a little longer. God says, that's all garbage. That's just you trying to take creature credit. And whenever creature credit seeps into the picture, that's darkness immediately. That's why it's been humility, 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 humility from this pulpit. It's like a broken record, right? Humility, humility. Why? Because humility takes you to light. As we mature, we begin to realize that nothing in our lives is worth anything unless it has been given to us by God. James 1.17 Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. You'd say, oh yeah, see? I got my intelligence from God. Yeah, but you got your reputation and your self-esteem from the world. That's where you went perverted. <laughs> I got my strength from God. It's true. But it was a test, and you failed it because you put your self-esteem in it. You let your reputation be based on that thing. That's not good. Therefore, it's not from God. So we have to put things into perspective, don't we? That's what this whole series is about, as much as it is about the gospel proper. We have to put things into proper perspective. We have to consider that God's not interested in endorsing the world's viewpoint of you. He's not interested. Even if it's tremendously good. He's not interested in endorsing their viewpoint. He doesn't care. I mean, he cares, but you know what I mean. He's not interested in endorsing you. If it's not from the hand of God, then it's not intrinsically good. It's that simple. I've taught this in many different ways now for months. If your self-esteem is tied to anything other than what you can actually see in Scripture, you have a problem. And it's not, it's not intrinsically good. You know, you know what's really good in this life? I've been soul-searching, and again, I'll say it again, one of the beauties of having a little extra time off of the pulpit as of late is it's been allowing me to actually do some things I hadn't been able to do in a long time, which was soul-searching, for lack of a better term. Really just step back and look at my own life and say, well, 
what's really good in this life? And I've, I say this with complete humility, but I've been all over this place and done all kinds of weird things. I still do weird things. If you know me, you know, I'm constantly doing weird things. Uh, but what I've learned is it's the simple things. That's what I've learned. I, I mean, I'll go to my grave. There's no way. There's no way that my mind will ever be changed or upturned about this particular issue that <clears throat> the best things in life are simple and free. Go to Ecclesiastes 5.18. Ecclesiastes 5.18. You want to know about good things? You want to know about every good gift from being from above? Learn to focus on the simple things in your life. If you have one friend, you do. You always have Jesus. That should be enough. But if he's given you other friends or other people to care about or that care about you, uh, those are good things. Those are good things. Ecclesiastes 5.18, Here is what I have seen to be good and fitting, to eat, to drink, and enjoy oneself, in all one's labor in which he toils under the sun during the few years of his life, which God has given him, for this is his reward. Yeah. Did everybody eat today? Good. You made it another day. Why not be grateful? It wasn't filet. <laughs> oh. And it was box wine. Oh. Right? I'm not going to try to come up with something witty because I don't know what a good wine is. Last time I tried it, everybody made fun of me. <laughs> and he then he concludes, Solomon, the, the one of great wisdom, concludes with this. This is the very end of the book. In the Amplified, Ecclesiastes 12, 13, and 14, when all has been heard, the end of the matter is fear God. Worship Him with awe-filled reverence, knowing that He is Almighty God, and keep His commandments. For this applies to every person. For God will bring every act to judgment, every hidden and secret thing, whether it is good or evil. That's not complicated, folks. Honest to goodness, that is not complicated. And that's how we're going to end this evening's message the simple things. For far too long, myself included, I, I, we've been making a mess of this. We've been, we've been making a mess of it. We've been overcomplicating this whole thing for way too long. Making doctrines on doctrines, and we had so many doctrines just to describe the doctrine the word was this long. What are we doing? What are we doing? With that said, we might begin our days with this simple truth. Overcoming darkness with faith slash grace orientation. God shows us grace every day by simply waking us up and giving us the breath of life. 
that is the baseline grace he's given even to unbelievers through patience. That is a test in and of itself, my friends. Do you understand that you don't have to be here right now? Some of you are like, I wish I wasn't. Just saying, I'd be up in heaven. But you get the point. You don't have to be healthy. There are some right now listening to my voice, whether they're here or at home, that are not healthy. They're listening right now, and they're in pain. Not a little pain. Ooh, I got a hangnail. A lot of pain. And even they're grateful that God gave them another day to be a witness for His grace. So I guess you could rightly say that anything beyond simply getting out of bed in the morning is icing on the cake, isn't it? Some of you might be saying, oh, that sounds great on paper, but you don't live my life with all these whack jobs. They're just plain awful, totally antagonistic to Christ. I understand. But how about the following for a little perspective then. Go to Acts 5.40. Acts 5.40. I'll listen to that, but then I'll give you Scripture. Is that fair? Will you, will you give me that space? All right. I'm not going to argue with you because I don't live your life, and I don't really want to live your life. You people are sick. <laughs> but I'm sick too, so you don't want to live my life. That's not funny, Michelle. Everybody else is like, mm. and I was like, it's true, you're sick. She's little, but she's vicious. Right, Michael? <laughs> Michael, yeah, yeah. He's got me in trouble. Acts 540. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Acts 540. They took his advice, and after calling the apostles in, they flogged them and ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and then released them. So they went on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. (laughs) That's awesome, isn't it? They rejoiced. They get persecuted. They're like, good, good. We expected the gospel to be offensive. You know why? Because our Lord said it was. If they persecuted me, they're going to persecute all of you. If we were doing it wrong, guess what? We wouldn't be persecuted. So faith's perspective. Being persecuted for the name of Christ is a reason for rejoicing. So says Scripture. Ah, you don't know my life. Hey, listen. There's the Scripture. What would you like me to say? I'm not going to argue with you, but you can argue with God. Good luck with that. Been there, done that. You're going to lose that arm wrestling battle. Being persecuted for the name of Christ is a reason for rejoicing. Acts 5.41. This is true wisdom. If, If faith is stepping out, then wisdom is the destination. So you're going to you're going to step out by faith. And you know what's going to happen? Wisdom from the Bible says you will be persecuted. Not maybe, you will be. 
But that in of itself is wisdom, isn't it? Yes. If faith is the stepping out, then wisdom is the destination. You're only going to be encouraged further. If the Bible says, by faith, if you step out, you will be persecuted, and every time you step out, you get persecuted, what can you say about the Bible? It's real. <laughs> it's true. If they say they, the world, if, if the Bible says the world's going to hate you for being a believer, an ardent one maybe, in Christ, and you realize it does hate you, what does that say about the Bible? It reaffirms your faith. As the Spirit's been emphasizing from the pulpit as a part of our ongoing studies regarding experiential sanctification, up here on the board, wisdom is gained through experience, not merely going to church. Mission implies the field, a.k.a. life. Consider our great co-mission, our joint mission with God. Again, wisdom is gained through experience, folks, not merely going to church. Mission implies the field, a.k.a. life. Consider our great co-mission, our joint mission with God. As I was listening to uh, Tuesday's lesson, I was stricken with a remnant of some old thinking in my soul, thinking that I'm so glad the Spirit has since relieved me of, and I'll share it here. The great commission, and I purposely wrote co-mission to emphasize its joint. Matthew 28:18-20. I used to think that disciple meant educated or mature. That to be a true disciple, you had to be educated. You had to be mature in the faith. Otherwise, you were just like a believer. But a disciple, the end goal of discipleship, in other words, was to be a an academic giant. That's how I had it in my head. However, as I keep on reading my Bible, I realize that it predominantly refers to a person who is saved. <laughs> to go and make disciples is to follow Jesus' pattern. What did Jesus, what was his pattern? For the Son of Man has come to seek and to what? Save that which was lost. That's his pattern. It's that simple. Luke 19.10 So let me try to explain this with an analogy for you. Would you say that an army colonel, now if you don't know what that is, that's an 06, that's right before you become a general. That's really high. Most most people, I believe, on average, retire either lieutenant colonel or colonel if they're lifers. Most, as far as I know, don't make it to general. General is a staff position. It's a big deal. So would you say that an army colonel understands the core objective of war? <laughs> okay, 20, 30 years in the army. I'm going to say, yeah. The core objective of war is to win. Amen? Okay, is that like rocket science? No. Here's us. They're trying to kill us. 
we're going to beat them. Right? It's that fundamental. So what's our core objective in the spiritual war? To win souls. That's what Scripture says. Then why does a full bird colonel have to go off to the National War College to have any hopes of becoming a general? It's a big, prestigious thing. And it's literally a college, and they come out with a master's degree, as far as I know. Why does a full bird colonel who knows everything there is really to know fundamentally about war, why do they need to go to college? Just so you know what I'm talking about, the National War College, the curriculum is based upon critical analysis of strategic problem solving with emphasis on strategic leadership. Wikipedia. Does a colonel not understand war? I think he'd be offended if you ever suggested that. So then, what's to study in war college? I mean, why pull a person out of the mission field for additional training? Likewise, why spend all of this time studying the Bible at our war college, the local assembly, if the objective is that simple? What are we doing? <laughs> if it's that simple, why do I need to go to class? <laughs> right? And some people, idiots, have made that conclusion and don't come to class anymore. But that's why they won't be generals either. Why spend all this time studying the Bible at our war college, you know, the local assembly, if the objective is that simple? Why pull us out of the mission field? The answer, the answer is easier than many have suggested, even from pulpits. It's not that the war has changed, for the war is ancient, my friends. It predates mankind. This war is ancient. The war hasn't changed. It's a spiritual one. Read about it in Ephesians 6. It's not flesh and blood, I can tell you that, but it's bloodier, quote-unquote, than any other war ever waged on this planet. So it's not as if the war has changed, it's ancient. Rather, it's how it's waged that requires additional training in strategy. In other words, we're not learning or reorganizing the basic tenets of war. They want to win, we want to win. That's war. Those things are easy enough to identify. What we are doing is learning, even through historical accounts of biblical characters, what strategies and tactics work and which ones don't. We looked at Gideon, for example. Think of David and Goliath. What do you see there? Humility and faith. So what strategies and tactics work and which ones don't? It's like anything up here on the board. <clears throat> Preparing for experience, for sanctification. There's simply no substitute for experience. No matter how intelligent a person may be, their wares must be put to the test in order to precipitate true wisdom. There's no substitute for experience. Why do you think the Bible says... 
in, I want to say it's Proverbs, we're to esteem those with gray hair. Why? Because they have experience and we can learn from it. An arrogant little adolescent type believer doesn't understand that yet. Hasn't been slapped upside the head, I guess, hard enough by life itself to respect such a thing as gray hair, which really is pointing to experience. So there's simply no substitute for experience. No matter how intelligent a person may be, their wares must be put to the test in order to precipitate true wisdom. One of the, I don't know why I'm thinking about this, but I'll share it. I remember um, I was close with a few of my professors in college, and uh, because I was a little older too, I'd gone through the military. And um, One of them said, and it was almost some, at the time I thought it was grand. I was like, oh, that's so wise. But now I look at it and I say, it's foolish because it was coming from someone in an ivory tower. And I have nothing against professors. They're necessary. But this perspective was grossly out of whack. He said to me, he said, um, how do you say it? He said, experience is doing something for about a year and then just doing the same thing for the next 20 And I said, at the time, I was like, yeah, that's really smart. Now I'm like, you're an idiot. I said, that was just a way for that individual to justify some kind of a closeted existence. Not to actually go out into the field. And actually do the things that he was telling others to do. Anyways, I digress. For example, when Jesus' disciples couldn't get a demon out of a possessed person, he responded with, you of little faith. Go to Matthew 17, 18. Matthew 17, 18. So the point of the board again is, the Spirit's trying to prepare you. I mean, why go off to college? You know, why go off to war college or the equivalent, which is the local assembly? Why do this thing? If it's that simple, why are we doing this thing? Because you have to learn what the strategies are in opposition to that one simple little thing. The world is full of them. All, this is what I've learned. All the complex, anything good comes from heaven, right? God's not a God of confusion. All the complexity that we struggle with is man-made. And I'm talking even comes from pulpits. In some ways, the most dastardly proponents of confusion are pulpits. I was guilty of it for years. You shouldn't be confused. I mean, there are times where you're like, I need to learn this, or I'd like to study that out a little bit. I'd like to see how the Spirit works that out in my soul. But you shouldn't go 10 years being confused. Or you shouldn't go year over year becoming more confused. You might have times of confusion. Great. Stick it out. That's a test. But you shouldn't be becoming more confused. You should be becoming less confused. Matthew 17, 18. And Jesus rebuked him, and the demon came out of him, and the boy was cured at once. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, 
Why could we not drive it out? So consider the scene, first of all. They understood evil, and, they, and that said demon must be removed. So they weren't lacking knowledge of what needed to get done, were they? No. As Jesus described, they lacked the how. Verse 20, And He said to them, Because of the littleness of your faith, for truly I say to you, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. It's not that they didn't understand what needed to get done, just like a colonel doesn't understand what needs to get done in war. We need to win. Well, how do we do that? They're doing this. They're doing that. I don't understand. Why are they doing this? How are they doing that? What, 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 do they, what do they mean? They're flanking us at the same time? They're flanking us left, right, behind? They're coming in with this kind of technology and that technology? Yeah. The complexity is actually defending something. The thing you're defending is actually very pure and simple. It's, it's the rest of the world. We're berserk. Because of the littleness of your faith. So, did Jesus, ask yourself, now concentrate, <clears throat> in this moment, did Jesus say to his disciples, hey, come over here, I need to teach you something brand new. Something I've not taught you before. Something complex. Did he say that? Nope. He said, because of your little faith. He didn't teach them anything new, did he? No. Did he say... Here's a little secret. No. The issue was faith. Something the disciples understood as a doctrine already. So the issue wasn't a doctrinal one. It was a faith, spiritual one. The issue wasn't doctrinal. It wasn't because they were ignorant. And that's the lie that some of you have bought in the past. Well, you'll get it eventually. 20 years later, you're like, man, I'm more confused than I was 10 years ago. I don't have it yet. Now I'm feeling more insecure. What the heck is going on? Because the issue was never a doctrinal one. The issue was a faith one. And this, my friends, is something that all of you need to focus on right now. If you're not living the spiritual life it's not because you don't understand something about the faith. Because you do. It's simple. You're not going to be magically delivered by learning some new corner doctrine that some theologian gave a snazzy name to. That's all a trap, my friends. It's just religion by another name. As the Bible teaches dogmatically, God gives grace. God gives what? Grace to the humble. That's very simple. Very simple. God gives grace to the humble. If He wants you to be smarter on a subject, guess who will make you smarter on the subject? He will. Because He gives each a measure of faith, right? If he doesn't want you to be whatever on a subject, more whatever, then he won't. If he says time and time again through this pulpit, through this vessel, 
Get your butts to church. Then as Solomon said in Ecclesiastes 12, fear God and keep his commandments. Do that thing. Listen to the guy. He's using scripture to encourage you. Right? Are the, do we not understand the, what it means to actually, what? Do the basics? We all know the basics. We all know the gospel by now. We all know what's at stake right now. And God says, good, I'll give grace to the humble. That means that your deliverance, your sanctification, your success in the, quote, field has everything to do with humility. Um, I talk to Scott on a regular basis, and we often sort of digress to uh, the mission field. And it often ends up with a conversation of how faithful these people are. And I'm going to be honest with you. They think folks like us are geniuses because we have so much doctrine. Yet they are out there living by faith with what little they have. You know what they have? The gospel. And you know what they have right? The gospel. You know what they haven't overcomplicated? The gospel. You know what they don't sit in front of for six hours a day? A television. You know what they don't do when when they're driving down the road illegally? Text. They don't do any of that stuff. They're not self-absorbed the way we are up here in this country that's got prosperity. But, Scott, is it fair to say that their faith is undeniable? That it's overwhelming? That it's humbling? Yeah, he's nodding his head. Of course it is. So how in the world could it possibly be that some that have so little training, so to speak, can overcome things that if you took on tomorrow would crumble. How could that possibly be? You tell me. In the case of Jesus' disciples and the demon, they were being arrogant somehow to the degree that their faith suffered. So concentrate, can't believe I'm out of time. Yeah, I got a place to stop. Concentrate. It's a good place to stop, too. It's like I've been trying to teach you for a long time now, through the pulpit and even through blogs, plural. The simplicity of our faith. There's only a small amount of central doctrine in Scripture. For example, the gospel. Honestly. Honestly, folks, I don't know how to tell you this. I don't know if you're disappointed or you showed up and it was, you know, I was like, woo, I expect fireworks. And you got, you know, right? That's it. I showed up for the fireworks for this. There's only a small amount of central doctrine. Honestly, I mean, I don't know what the heck people are thinking. I know what they're thinking. They want to stratify themselves. That's what I... That's what I believe. I believe the flesh can pervert just about anything pure. But unless you're reading a different Bible, there's not a lot of doctrine in there. 
It's really small. It's central. It's the gospel. It's the good news. I mean, even the Old Testament, what do you think that was? What do you think all those rituals were about? You know, they, they were types of covering the sin. That's the gospel. Who covered your sin? The Lamb of God, who was slain for you. <laughs> you mean it's not that difficult? No, it's actually not. It's actually the same thing over and over and over and over and over again. But when I read about Zacchaeus or Gideon or so-and-so, I need to make a doctrine. No, you don't, you fool. You fool. You don't need to make a doctrine. You need to see the purity of the gospel in every jot and tittle, as the Bible would say. That's what you're looking for. So there's only a small amount of central doctrine in Scripture. The rest of it describes accounts of where those core doctrines are either being reaffirmed or defended against the tax. That's why you go to Bible college, or the war college, excuse me. Bible class, the war college, quote, quote. That's why you go to war college. To understand, not to, look, not to overcomplicate the simple things. Let's not pervert the simple things. Let's leave that alone, because the flesh wants to pervert those. Let's leave it alone. You come to class to realize what it takes in the strategies that are required to defend that beautiful, perfect, pure thing in your life. That person, Jesus Christ. How, I mean, think about it. How many people are preaching a different Jesus right now? Do you know all the ways that it's happening? No, you don't. But this will help. He hasn't changed. The Bible says he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He hasn't changed. So the complexity then, the reason we come to the war college, the reason you come to class, is to survey scripture and maybe gain some additional wisdom about the strategies that are required to lay down your life for others to defend the gospel tooth and nail. As Paul would say, I've fought the good fight. I've I've finished the race. I've finished the course. All I want to know is Christ and Him crucified. Did He say, let's run off and make a doctrine about Sarah? Or let's do a word study on some obscure Aramaic word? Did He say that? No. He says, I just want to defend my Lord and Savior. The same guy who knocked me down on my tush and then trained me up in the truth and said, you need all that extra time to get your stuff together. That's how long it must have taken Paul, years, to get himself together. Why? You know why? Because he had more years than that under his belt in the darkness. What do you think all you are? Think about it. What is the gospel? You know, the gospel is like TNT in you. 
It comes in, you get it right. Everybody's afraid of getting it right because that means they have to throw out all their religions. And it goes, and your entire life goes up in smoke. And you say, what the hell just happened? You know what just happened? Your life just went up in smoke. All the things you were planning for, all the fleshly little trinkets and the little religions and all the little how-tos and the, you know, the areas of strength and the blah, blah, it all went poof. <laughs> and there's Jesus saying, good, good. Now that you got the gospel right, let's go back and read the Bible the way it's supposed to be read. Hence the point on the board. This should be supremely encouraging for all of you. There's not, there's the, the doctrines, the core doctrines, the ones that you need to understand, are simple. Do you understand Jesus Christ? Do you understand that he laid down his life for you? Do you understand that God loved the whole world, that he sent him? Do you understand those things? That Jesus Christ is a person, not a mental ascent? Do you understand those things? Do you understand that He's your Lord and Savior? Do you understand what God's asking of you? Do you understand what the gospel presents? Those are not complicated things. Those are easy things. Do I have a Savior or not? Because everybody else in this world is trying to tear Him apart. That's what we're doing here. How are those jackasses doing it today? Amen? Let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for the privilege of studying your word here this evening. We ask for your blessings as we take what we've learned. Out to a lost and dying world, Father, that needs it so desperately. We ask these things in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Thank you.